Calling all women and friends of women. Listen up and listen out for the new women's magazine here on KPFA. We'll take a look at women's lives, their art, culture, and communities from a diverse, radical feminist perspective. The Women's Magazine airs the first three Mondays of every month from 1 to 2 p.m. For more information, call 510-848-6767, extension 608. Check us out. This is 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m., and up next is Cover to Cover. public intellectual is someone who engages with the world and speaks to urgent contemporary issues and Sontag really did that. Simone de Beauvoir is probably best known to American audiences as the author of The Second Sex. Hannah Arendt is arguably one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. While men of letters have traditionally achieved the influential position of public intellectual, in the 20th century, a number of important women took on the same role. What influenced them to speak out in the public sphere? And how did they develop their voices? I'm Sally Plaxon. On this edition of What's the Word, Susan Freeman discusses the work of Susan Sontag. Part of Sontag's interest for us, I think, is, and perhaps maybe what makes her a frustrating as well as intriguing figure, is how contradictory she seems. She's very much an esthete and she opposes aesthetics to morality. And at the same time, she is politically engaged and models for us an artist who does speak out on the Vietnam War or on the sufferings in Sarajevo or the torture of prisoners in Iraq. Margaret Simons talks about the work of Simone de Beauvoir. I think the way that she became a public intellectual is that she took her personal problems, her doubts, and saw them as part of humanity, not in some kind of abstract universal, but in a concrete context as a struggle. And Liliana Weisberg explores the writings of Hannah Arendt. The most important influence is the experience of the Nazi regime. And the decision that philosophy had to lose its innocence. And the loss of innocence of philosophy results in political theory for Arendt. Join us on this edition of What's the Word? Women Public Intellectuals. A public intellectual is someone who engages with the world and speaks to urgent contemporary issues, and Sontag really did that, whether it was speaking out against the Vietnam War or spending time in Sarajevo and talking about the suffering of Bosnians. Susan Freeman is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Virginia. She's the author of Unbecoming Women, British Women Writers and the Novel of Development, and Cool Men and the Second Sex. 
She wrote in a number of genres. She wrote four novels, is best known for her non-fictional essays, but she also wrote a play and she directed movies and directed plays and did a TV special. Sontag was born in 1933 in New York City and grew up in Tucson and Los Angeles. She graduated from the University of Chicago at 18 with a degree in philosophy, went on to study at Harvard, Oxford, and the Sorbonne, got married, and got divorced. And as she put it later in the interview, she arrived in New York City from Paris in 1959 with a six-year-old son, $30 in two suitcases, and that was her entree. But by 1963, she had published her first novel. The following year, she writes Notes on Camp, which got a lot of attention. It came out in Partisan Review, and that was the beginning of it all. Her first big book is Against Interpretation, which includes Notes on Camp and also the title essay that comes out in 66. In some sense, says Freeman, Sontag was a child of her time when she burst onto the scene in the 1960s. By the time the anti-war movement is picking up, she is going to add her voice to that. In 1977, her book on photography was published. In it, she discusses the effects of overexposure to atrocities. What happens if you see the 17th image of some act of terrible violence? Can you respond in the same way as the first time you see such an image? And do we, in fact, become inured to photos of acts of violence? Does it have a sort of anesthetizing effect on us? In On Photography, she says that photos can temporarily make the event more real. But her emphasis is on her concern that with repeated exposure, the event will actually recede and become less real. Sontag revised her view in her 2003 book, Regarding the Pain of Others. At that point, she really says, no, even if we're exposed many times, we can be haunted by these photos, and these photos can invite us to ask questions about who is accountable for this violence. Sontag writes, that we are not totally transformed, that we can turn away, turn the page, switch the channel, does not impugn the ethical value of an assault by images. Such images cannot be more than an invitation to pay attention, to reflect, to learn, to examine the rationalizations for mass suffering offered by established powers. Who caused what the picture shows? Who was responsible? Is it excusable? Was it inevitable? Like many successful women, says Freeman, Sontag was asked about her feelings on feminism. Sontag called herself a feminist, repeatedly expressed her sympathy with feminist agendas, took for granted that history is patriarchal history, and yet really resisted making women and gender injustice the focus of her work, although it would be that recurrently, but certainly not to the exclusion of other issues. This is in some ways perhaps surprising since she does come of age in a way that really coincides almost completely with the origins of the second wave women's movement, 1968 usually being given as the starting date for that. At the end of Regarding the Pain of Others, Sontag raises the question posed by Virginia Woolf in Three Guineas. And she closes that book by saying, are women more apt to question the inevitability of war? And she just says in parentheses, probably yes.
So there's a moment where you could say it's an uncharacteristic moment in terms of her work overall, but it's a moment where she acknowledges the extent to which her thinking about not only war and photography, but presumably also style and camp and all of her work is necessarily in some sense informed by her speaking, not just as an intellectual, but as a female intellectual Wolf talked about how as women we think back through our mothers, and Sontag is thinking back through Wolf and other women. Sontag was also influenced by a circle of women in New York that included Elizabeth Hardwick, Mary McCarthy, and Hannah Arendt, and a circle of intellectuals in France that included Simone de Beauvoir. So I think that Sontag, as much as she may have looked to certain male models, and I think she unquestionably did, was also very interested in women who showed that women could make an important intellectual contribution. Sontag's work, says Freeman, continues to be relevant today. Both in terms of contemporary academic concerns and in terms of contemporary political issues, she was very outspoken on the importance of protecting free speech in general, but specifically the free speech rights of artists her concern with the suffering caused by war and the questions that she asked about whether or not photographs can make us more sensitive to or else desensitize us to the suffering caused by war clearly is something we need to continue thinking about. Above all, says Freeman, Sontag valued style. Style above content our immediate response to style without any attempt to interpret. So I'd like to read something from Against Interpretation and then fall silent, not offer any commentary, but let her words speak for themselves. This is from Against Interpretation, 1966. Interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon art. By reducing the work of art to its content and then interpreting that, one tames the work of art. Interpretation makes art manageable. Interpretation makes a streetcar named desire about something, about the decline of Western civilization. Apparently, were it to go on being a play about a handsome brute named Stanley Kowalski and a faded mangy belle named Blanche Dubois, it would not be manageable. What is needed is more attention to form in art. Equally valuable would be acts of criticism which would supply a really accurate, sharp, loving description of the appearance of a work of art. Essays which reveal the sensuous surface of art without mucking about in it. In place of a hermeneutics, we need an erotics of art. Susan Sontag died in 2004. I'm Sally Claxon, and you're listening to What's the Word, a program made possible through support from the Modern Language Association of America, an organization dedicated to encouraging the study of language and literature. Simone de Beauvoir is probably best known to American audiences as the author of The Second Sex. It was named one of the most important books in the 20th century by a Time magazine. It laid the foundation for the women's liberation movement that came years later. It was published in English in 52, 
Margaret Simons is a professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. With Sylvie Le Bon de Beauvoir, she's the co-editor of a seven-volume series of Simone de Beauvoir's writings in New English translations. The first volume in the series is Beauvoir's Philosophical Writings, followed by The Diary of a Philosophy Student, Volume 1, 1926-1927. Beauvoir made her role as a public intellectual out of her own experience as a woman, from her personal experience of racism in the States, from her personal experience of being in the midst of this radical social change where women first gained access to the public domain in France, as an intellectual writing against the French public in the Algerian War, and then at the end of her life writing in support of old age, support of people trapped in nursing homes. She created her role as a public intellectual out of her personal life, but it far transcended her personal life, and perhaps actually gave us a model of what a public intellectual means for a woman. Beauvoir was born in Paris in 1908 and raised in a bourgeois family. In 1926, she entered the Sorbonne as a philosophy student. Before I started researching her 1926-27 diary, I didn't realize that only in 1924 were the educational reforms passed in France that gave French women full access to academic world of philosophy, to graduate work, and to the professions. And Beauvoir's student diary shows her struggling to reconcile societal expectations of her as a woman with her intellectual ambitions as a member of the first generation of French women to gain full access to the academic world of philosophy. She graduated from the Sorbonne with a graduate degree in philosophy, scoring the second highest grade after fellow philosophy student Jean-Paul Sartre. Yet later in her life, Beauvoir rejected the label philosopher. She said it in her memoirs, I am not a philosopher. Sartre is the philosopher. I am a literary writer. Then in 1990, Sylvie Le Bon de Beauvoir, Beauvoir's adopted daughter and literary executor, published two volumes that would overturn the traditional reading of Simone de Beauvoir. They were her war diary, written at the beginning of the occupation of World War II, and the letters to Sartre. The reason that these were so important is that Beauvoir had previously been known, really traditionally still is known by a lot of people in the States, as Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophical follower. Also in 1990, Sylvie Le Bon de Beauvoir donated Beauvoir's handwritten student diaries to the Bibliothèque Nationale, where they were made available to scholars. I was shocked at what I found. I found evidence that she was herself a philosopher that two years before she met Sartre, she had ambitions and passion for philosophy that belies all these claims in her memoirs. Much of Jean-Paul Sartre's theory of existentialism centered on the self and the other. I looked in her diaries, and sure enough, I found indication of her philosophy. Well, look at the second sex. The central philosophy, the central thesis there is that woman is the other. In other words, she's not the subject, she's an object, the other in a culture made by men. Men assume themselves as subject, they see woman as an object. That's her thesis in the second sex. 
Well, in the 1927 diary, I found a passage. In the passage, it said that she has to work on some problems that have interested her, that she has come up with inadequate solutions for, and the theme is this opposition of self and other. Beauvoir's novel, The Blood of Others, written during Germany's occupation of France, was a resistance work. Simon suggests that it may be Beauvoir's first novel as a public intellectual. It began this phase of her writing. She calls it the moral period in her literary life. She was trying to teach herself what it meant to be moral. And that meant political. She said at the end of the occupation, she felt as though politics was a family affair. They were ready to take action. We see this in The Second Sex. She, as the author of The Second Sex, took action. She calls in that book for women to take responsibility for forming a collective struggle to assert themselves as subjects of history and not remain passive objects of history. This remained her goal 21 years later when she wrote Coming of Age, a work originally called in French Old Age. She wants to get clear. She wants to get out from under all of these myths, these misconceptions about what woman is or what old people are. If we could just see the reality and society could adjust to support people in their efforts to be free, to be subjects of history rather than objects of history. In the second sex, she wants support for women who are mothers. She wants the state to take on the responsibilities of child care. If women are going to be able to have public roles in society, then society has to recognize the service women provide in reproducing, bringing in the next generation. Society has to recognize that and support it. One of the things that really is so sad and very touching about Beauvoir's diaries is a sense of her own struggles as a woman on the cusp of historic change. Beauvoir writes in The Second Sex, What is a woman? To state the question is, to me, to suggest at once a preliminary answer. The fact that I ask it is itself significant. A man would never get the notion of writing a book on the singular situation that males occupy in humanity. But if I wish to define myself, I must first of all say, I am a woman. Man thinks of his body as a direct and normal relation with the world, which he believes he apprehends objectively, whereas he regards the body of woman as a hindrance, a prison. Woman is defined with reference to man, and not he with reference to her. He is the subject, the absolute. She is the other. There's no more distinctive phrase that's associated with the second sex than that claim, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. This is the beginning of volume two of The Second Sex, and the passage continues, No biological, psychological, or economic fate determines the figure that the human female presents in society. It is civilization as a whole that produces this creature, intermediate between male and eunuch, which is described as feminine. Toward the end of The Second Sex, Beauvoir offers a new vision. When at last it will be possible for every human being thus to set his pride beyond sexual differentiation, in the laborious glory of free existence, only then will woman be able to identify her personal history, her problems, her doubts, her hopes with those of humanity. 
Only then will she be able to seek in her life and her works to reveal the whole of reality and not merely her personal self. As long as she still has to struggle to become a human being, she cannot become a creator. I'm Sally Plaxon, and you're listening to What's the Word? Women Public Intellectuals. Hannah Arendt is arguably one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. But the problem is that she herself did not regard herself as a philosopher primarily. Liliana Weisberg is a professor in the Department of German and Comparative Literature at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the editor of the critical edition of Hannah Arendt's Rachel Farnhagen, The Life of a Jewess. Hannah Arendt was born in 1906 in Hanover, but moved with her family very soon to Königsberg. Arendt studied philosophy with Martin Heidegger and Karl Jaspers, two leading philosophers of the day, and thus was one of the few women studying philosophy at that time. So on the one hand, she studied philosophy. She was very much involved in rethinking the Enlightenment and thinking about the notion of modernism. At the same time, Hannah Arendt rejected philosophy for herself. First of all, because she felt the need of political theory. She thought of herself as a political theorist, as somebody who was thinking about acting, handlung, about the public realm. And secondly, and that is another reason why it is a little bit awkward in introducing her in the group of other women philosophers, she was not a feminist and she did not regard her being a woman is a very important fact of her life or her philosophy. In 1951, Arendt consolidated her World War II and post-war writings and ideas in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. It establishes key themes that Arendt would explore in later works. For instance, the conditions that make possible a democratic and humane public life the forces that threaten it, and the conflict between private interest and public good. And her idea of totalitarianism was a political system in which the individual, and that was very important for Arendt, would lose all power of action. The kind of state that was run by a party and that would no longer give sufficient space for the kind of human relationship that she would envision in a democratic society. Her 1958 work, The Human Condition, emphasized the importance of plurality, that we live in a world with others. Plurality is what is needed to make a democracy. And plurality is needed not only to make many opinions heard to have many people speak, but also for a space to appear that Arendt calls the in-between. In her book of essays, Men in Dark Times, she identifies a potential threat to plurality, withdrawal. Arendt writes, This withdrawal from the world need not harm an individual. 
He may even cultivate great talents to the point of genius, and so by a detour be useful to the world again. But with each such retreat, an almost demonstrable loss to the world takes place. What is lost is the specific and usually irreplaceable in-between which should have formed between this individual and his fellow man. This quotation, I think, shows that Arendt insists on plurality, both because she wants this multiplicity of voices, but also the space in between that needs to develop. And it also indicates something else, namely Arendt's critique of modernity. Modernity is something that she fears produces this loss of the world, the withdrawal of the individual from the public realm. And one striking example of this withdrawal is the case of Adolf Eichmann. Arendt was engaged by the journal The New Yorker to go to Jerusalem and witness the trial of Adolf Eichmann. The articles were eventually revised as a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. Arendt came prepared with her work on antisemitism, with her experiences of Nazi Germany, but was surprised as she wrote herself to find in Adolf Eichmann a person that did not look and did not act as, let me say, a monster in the way that she expected him to be. Instead, Eichmann was a person who did not seem to take responsibility for his actions, but who insisted only to have carried out orders, to have sat behind his desk, and to have done nothing but his work. Eichmann was somebody who was thoughtless. Thoughtlessness for Arendt meant refraining from responsibility as well as from any reflection about one's deeds. It stood in the way of politically and morally responsible choices, says Weisberg, and led to complicity with political evil. And so the notion of the banality of evil, which, by the way, is part of the title not by Aaron's choice, but by her publisher's choice, and appears in the book itself only at its very end, became, like totalitarianism, one of the words that have been associated with Arendt and her philosophy from then on. Weisberg explored Arendt's transition from philosopher to political theorist. I think the most important influence is the experience of the Nazi regime and the decision that philosophy had to lose its innocence. And the loss of innocence of philosophy results in political theory for Arendt. Because what distinguishes philosophy from political theory is that it is thought without the contemplation of action. Indeed, she thought of philosophers as somehow naive, as not being able to take responsibility for public action. Arendt was also opposed to psychoanalysis. To any form of reflection that would 
be more of a withdrawal to an inner life than this kind of in-between between people. So no, it is not the personal, is the political. It's very much the relation between people. The in-between is the political. She was really a person who did not think of herself as a member of an ivory tower. In that sense, very much a public intellectual. A public intellectual also in terms of her theory itself, that it is the public realm she was interested in and how people interact with each other and what action means, what thinking means. This edition of What's the Word? Women Public Intellectuals was written, produced, and narrated by Sally Plaxon. Technical Director, Duke Marcos. Production Coordinator, Lee Morgan. Production Engineer, Steve Weiss. For a list of works mentioned on this program, please write The Modern Language Association of America, 26 Broadway, 3rd Floor, New York, New York, 10004 and ask for a copy of the list for program number 230. That's the Modern Language Association of America, 26 Broadway, 3rd Floor, New York, New York, 10004. Or call 646-576-5102. That's 646-576-5102. To listen to other programs in the series, visit our website, www.mla.org. You can contact us by email at wtwradio at pacbell.net. <laughs>